RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. It's Thursday, which means it's our Money Talk feature every Thursday morning here at RCR, and I'm really happy to welcome back one of Australia's top business and financial journalists, David James, returning as our guest, and we're going to be discussing, among other things, derivatives. You've probably heard that word, that term, What's what does it actually mean, uh, and should we be worried? David, nice to have you back. Thanks for coming back on RCR. Nice to be back. Okay. First up... Um, I just noticed in the last day or two, uh, the media here is crowing that uh, Stats NZ have said that food prices fell a seasonally adjusted 0.1%. BNZ economists, Bank of New Zealand economists here, um, are picking now that uh, the Reserve Bank won't hike the benchmark interest rate again. Kind of feels like things are, well, I don't know about saying <laughs> back to normal. But uh, you know that the uh, the um, cost of living crisis is sort of peaked and is starting to roll back. Would the, could we read that into what they're trying to say? Um, no. Uh, okay. The um, the first question to ask is what's causing the inflation? And a number of economists had said from when it kicked off that. It's much more supply-side inflation than demand-side inflation. Mm. Supply-side inflation is when the cost of the inputs go up for all sorts of reasons, one of which would have been COVID and what happened to the supply chains around the world um, and you know rising resource costs and things like that. Interest rates don't have any direct effect on that because interest rates only affect demand. So if it's not a demand problem, why even use that tool? Uh, well, you know, when uh, when you only... What, what, what's that expression? When the only thing you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. I mean, that's it's all I know, you know, and that's all I've got too is, um, is the interest rate. So... And they're also thoroughly deluded central bankers um, into thinking that they really do control the system, which they gave up in the 1980s, actually, which I'll explain with derivatives later on. But um, they don't really control the system. and But they like to think they do. And they have a hammer. And every time there's a problem, they think, well, I'll whack it with a nail. <laughs> either yeah. by taking, either by taking interest rates up or t- interest rates down. Right? So, yeah, it's like a one-trick pony act. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, and there's another bigger problem behind all this, which I might touch on too, which is um, the horrendous global debt, which is going to have an effect on interest rates anyway. Right, and the whole debt scenario. Um, but um, in the, in the short term, uh, maybe the p- proportion of inflation that's a function of demand may start to ease off because of the higher interest rates. But I suspect that a large that a large amount of it remains the supply problems, in which case they'll keep going up. And of course. If anything goes wrong and 
in the you know, it really goes wrong. In, I mean, it's gone wrong already, but anything really blows up in the Middle East, all bets are off, you know. Yeah, and that could happen. I'm just, again, I'm trying to think about what drives these um, massive increases. Um, it came to light yesterday relative to when we're speaking now that um, car insurance in this country has gone up 38% in two years, but there are no extra prangs or anything like that. Um, so well, well, my, guess, you, my guess yeah. is the thing to understand about insurance companies, is they make most of their money not from the premiums, but from their investments. And, oh, okay. So they're clawing um, back. Probably, because it, things may not be going well on the investment side. Um, I mean, there are two huge pools. Like there's $100 trillion of fund, funds under management in the world, which is the key money in the world, in the Western world anyway, because they, those, you know, institutions, uh, that institutional money, it's called, BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard being the big fund managers that everyone talks about, that they don't actually own the money. They, they invest it on behalf of somebody else. Right. And there's somebody else, two-thirds of that somebody else, 60, 70 trillion, is uh, pension funds and insurance companies. They are what's called the institutional investors, right. which is which is what all the stockbrokers go after, you know, because that's where the big money is, right? Um, and if they're not doing well, the insurance so the insurance companies are huge players, huge, and they don't get their main money from premium; they get it from investment. And um, if things aren't going well, then I guess you have to claw it back, as you say. What if they're paying out more on life insurance because? <laughs> younger people are oh yeah you know what um well, that, well that's, a, that's a wonderful exercise in sticking your head in the sand isn't it yeah I, well, but the thing yeah. the thing that's disappointed me most about all that is i oh my god there's disappointments everywhere um i really rated the actuaries before covid because they were the only people i ever saw get it right yeah everyone like every economist who makes a prediction is wrong you know, you're better off with a dartboard. And everyone, every epidemiologist all over the place, you know, you may you may as well just close your eyes and throw a dart at a dartboard, you know, you get a better result. But the actuaries really stood out to me as people, because there was a lot of money involved, of course, as people who really knew how to get it right. But they're running for the, running for the cover as well. They're not, in Australia, they're going, well, there's a completely unexplained, absolutely unprecedented rise in all-cause mortality, but it's not the vaccine. Yeah, we don't know what it is, but it's don't definitely know what it not is. that. No, it's definitely not. we I got no idea, but it's definitely not that. So, so much for the actuaries. You know, they, they, they've bottled it as well. <clears throat> but yeah. um, okay. anyway, anyway. All right. So, um, all right. So, how do we um, segue into... Um, the reserve banks or well, central banks think they have control, but they don't. Surely at some point they had some sort of control. When did they go? Okay. Um, just before we uh, just touch on the one thing I was going to say, which is that global debt at the moment is 300% of GDP, right? That is completely unsustainable. Of global GDP, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Including unsustainable in China as well. China's not exempt at all. In fact, China's one of the is really in trouble. And the central banks setting base interest rates 
it's generally assumed that you know that the spectrum above that will be fairly narrow. But I think when you see the global debt problems start to really hit home, which they will, I think you'll see a quite a wide range of interest rates, including some extremely high ones. Right, what twenty, thirty up in the that sort of zone. Well, you you're then talking global, you know, Weimar Republic type problems. Yeah. Is that and, known as hyperinflation potentially? Well, it's not. It's it, it's not so much the inflation. It's how do you recoup when your debts are, when your your loans are failing? How do you recoup money to keep stop the system from collapsing? Because there's a very real chance of that three hundred percent. There'd be a lot of defaults, you know, and you know restructuring, um, and that that means ban- banks. To, to survive, start raising rates very high. Yeah, yeah, and um, we're not there yet. But the, I was looking at it the other day. There's a guy called Michael Hudson who's done an Economist. Um, he's a bit of a socialist, but um, hmm. like, he makes a good case for socialism in the financial system, I think, but not not elsewhere. Um, <clears throat> um, he shows that this has literally been going on for thousands of years. Debt, oh, really? Debt, debt pr- collapses are thousands of years old, right? So, and it's sort of like a cycle or a sort of waveform over, over yeah, it's, history. Yeah, it, it's, um, it's really simple. Um, economic growth or income growth is linear, goes up, you know, like that, and compound interest goes up like is is um yeah is geometric it's not high yeah. it, it goes up much faster so after a you know a period of time the whole system starts to break right and um that's been happening since the babylonians and and uh, okay so it, it's it's extremely like the, the the jews had a thing called the jubilee every seven years right um the I mean, you go back into history, and it just happens all the time. Yeah. And we're now, um, so we're just repeating it. Who, who owes who what? Or does everybody owe somebody something? And well, it all it all varies. Yeah. Um, in Australia, government debt is sort of containable, largely because of our resources boom, and they actually paid down all federal debt to nothing under Howard and Costello, which is wow, extraordinary. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know the structure in New Zealand, but that what's out of control in Australia is uh, mortgage debt, household debt, which is, you know, ridiculously high house prices, absurdly and stupidly high house prices, um, and that's where the cracks will occur. But it depends on the country, you know. I don't know New Zealand. What's your federal debt like? Do you know, it's. I think. Um, oh, off the top of my head, I think we're about thirty percent of. Of GDP, it's quite low, but again, the that's, house- that's very low, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe I'd have to double check that, but the householder is in the same situation with their debt, high debt, yeah, okay. So that's but other countries, it's different, like the Fed, US debt is very heavily government debt. Um, it depends on the country, yeah, but it, it in aggregate, it's nuts, and um, it's a, it's a pattern that's been repeating for thousands of years. And the way you get out of it is either by debt forgiveness or uh, some kind of rescheduling, but usually debt forgiveness. I think China can do that because China's banking system is 
government banks, but in in the Western economies, the banks are private, and they only have to lose about one or two percent of their loans, and they they go down, right? So the, you can't get wholesale debt restructuring. Anyway, well, well, how come? Sorry, but to jump in, but how come ANZ here? And BNZ have announced the biggest profits they've ever had: one point six billion for ANZ, two billion for the BNZ. Yet everyone's on their knees because we haven't had defaults. The debts haven't failed yet. The question is, what happens when they start to fail? And um, there's no defaults yet. I mean, in Australia, like in America, if you can't pay your mortgage, you just take the keys back to the to the bank and say, "There it is." Not here. And you walk away with no debt. But in Australia, if you default on your mortgage, you've still got the debt. So you may as well fight to the absolute last. Right. And, they know, and they know that you will. And that's the same here, by the way. Yeah. And it, it will um, it just shrinks the amount of money you have for for other things. But 35.90% but, is the current latest government debt to GDP. Well, that's excellent. Yeah, That must be one of the best in the Western world. Though I, I'm wondering if that's because that, they say 2023 and we went nuts over COVID. So I would imagine that's higher, but that's the first search that came. Well, up. you know, like in Japan, it's like 250%. Yeah. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. And and it's um, what, uh, mid at 100% for the US, 120, 130, something like that. Well, it's what, 31 trillion in the US GDPs. Yeah. It's about one, yeah, 140, 150. Crazy. It's just so much money. Well, um, it's it it'll break, and it's the pattern of breaking is very is thousands of years old, like it's not, it's very predictable. But, um, but let's um let's back off back to derivatives. Uh, yeah, it's the same. It started with the same insanity in the nineteen eighties that caused the problem with central banks not having control. It was. Um, and I was working for you know the, the National Business Magazine at the time, so which was the biggest proponent of this in in all the media. Which it's called financial deregulation. Okay. And financial deregulation was essentially governments giving up the the um, regulation of the financial system and handing it over to the private sector. And uh, that was nonsense because finance is regulation, so you can't deregulate regulations. But nobody, strangely, seemed to notice that it was nonsense. And what was the reason for that? Uh, well, because you'd think that that would be right in the wheelhouse of a government, because that's that's where it all comes together. Well, my my explanation is they were captured by their own metaphors. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, the. Certainly, I noticed the way they talked. It was they were using metaphors without being aware of it. Um, we'll go back a bit, bit earlier, into the nineteen fifties, and there was this wonderful machine called the Moniac machine. I think it was called, which was invented in Britain, which was a kind of series of levers and pipes, and um, and kind of containers, and it was intended to model the British economy. It's, it's fantastic. Wow. <laughs> the, sheer, the, sheer, the, the sheer stupidity of it is just glorious. Um, oh, yeah. Technocrats. Yeah. And there's a, a terrific 
the uh, Adam Curtis, who's got to be the best documentary maker in the last 50 years, had a wonderful documentary on it. You can feature it in a doc. And what they used to do was pour uh, water into the pipes and you'd have sort of wages growth and interest rates and inflation and all the factors in the economy. And you would see where the water finished up and that would predict what was going to happen to the economy. Right? Crikey. Yeah, okay. And they started using that as a policy tool. Guess what happened? <laughs> it was complete and total abject failure. Is that AI version 1.0? I guess so, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. But the, the, the fact that it failed was totally predictable. But what, what it kind of it, – it's a kind of emblem of the way people think about money as a kind of quantity that flows around a system um, and then reaches its natural – Equilibrium. So you see in economic theory, you see you know, financial commentators, they talk about capital flows. Made round to go round. And uh, equilibrium, market equilibrium and things like that. And, and in their minds, they think of money as a sort of a fluid yeah. that kind of finds its proper, proper place, proper home. Now, in that context, regulations in their mind get in the way. Inhibit the flow. Inhibit the flow. So if we only just get rid of them, everything will be just hunky-dory. Oh, dear. Now, it was nonsense because money is regulations. You can't deregulate. It actually, that's what it is. It's not water or it's not a substance or that flows. And you know, No, it's rules. And, um, yeah, yeah. And so the, the fundamental logical error of the 1980s meant that governments around the world First of all, they got they lost complete control of the quantity of money. They only have the control over the cost of money, and not much of that. Hence, that blunt instrument uh, yeah. interest rate instrument yeah. tool. Yeah. yeah. Well, as I say, it's like trying to fight a fight one a boxing match with only one hand. You know, you're going to lose, right? Good luck um, with that. Yeah. And and the private actors took over. The banks started lending and inventing all sorts of um, uh, ways of lending with their ears pinned back, which is what was behind the absurd uh, house price rises. Yeah. Just banks, there was no control over the banks, so they just keep lending and lending and lending and lending, you know, and they um, – they, And they, 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 they through that, they create an ascending physical value that they can lend – more exactly. from right, so precisely, it's like an updraft that just <laughs> it becomes, it, it's asset inflation. Yeah, yeah, by, it's the actual dri- driven definition. by the banks. I mean, yeah. we've had um, asset inflation for you know thirty years in in Australia, presumably much the same in New Zealand. But the kit, the, the catch is that whereas consumer price inflation is very easy to measure, you know, because it's constantly being transacted, you know, things like you know, fuel and food and things like that. It's very hard to measure asset inflation because the inflation only becomes evident at the point of sale and you may not even sell it. Uh, you may hang on to your home, which is inflated massively in value. Yeah. Um, but only in theory. You need to put that to the test with a sale. Well, you know, economists measure transactions. And the transactions are uneven or may not even occur, so therefore they can't measure it. 
And the central banks go, well, we can't measure it, so it doesn't exist. <laughs> there you go. Simple. And, that, and, and so they've just ignored it for 25 years, even though it's staring everyone in the face. Um, anyway, they gave up control over um, finance, the, the creation of money. <clears throat> the first wave was the banks, or one of the waves was the bank lending, which just massively in, an asset inflation. But there was another one, uh, which is really mad, called derivatives. Now, I'll explain what a derivative is. They are um, contracts or bets or risk contracts that are derived from um, a sort of more conventional asset or commodity, right? That's why it's called a derivative because they're derived, they're secondary. Look, it's, it's sort of a meta level above everything else. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example you might want to take out a derivative on the price of um, this is where it started actually on the price of say dairy products yeah or you know pork bellies is one of the ones that they used to um, to protect yourself so you made sure you got a good price when when you when you went to sell sell right so you took it you might sell in six months and you took it as a derivative now. Somebody went on the other side of that derivative. You, you struck a deal. It was a, Both sides were sort of gambling. And um, at, when the sale was made, then the derivative was settled. That's really where it started. But then they started to play games with financial derivatives, like on bonds, on interest rates, on shares, and, you know, the whole spectrum. <clears throat> um and they took out huge amounts of notional debt on those derivatives. I mean, if you want to make a punt on the Australian dollar, you can go to things called CDC platforms, and you can put up, I don't know, I think it's about maybe $1,000, and you can make a million-dollar bet. Right? Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's that's leverage, right? <clears throat> yeah. Um, and you might, you know, you can act oh, something, maybe 10,000 to 1 million, but it, you can, it's all based on massive amounts of leverage. So you, you only put a certain amount up and make a much bigger bet. Now, in 1998, there was a um, hedge fund called Long Term Capital Management in a, and had two Nobel Prize winners in economics on its board or in its staff. And they made an absolute fortune out of derivatives um, using what they thought was a highly good, highly accurate predictive model. And things were going gangbusters until they made a punt on the ruble, the Russian ruble, that was spectacularly wrong. And because of this leverage, the payout that they finished up having to make or notionally had to make was so huge that it was enough to bring down the entire banking system of America. Okay. Right? Wow. It was it, – it, there's a wonderful book called um, When Genius Failed, which I highly recommend. If you want to know how it works, it hasn't – anyway. Um, Alan Greenspan, the head of the Federal Reserve, got everyone in a room, all the major banks, um, Goldman Sachs and Bank of America, and said, guys, if we don't bail these people out, we won't have a banking system. And the only – 
people who walked out of the meeting refusing was um, Lehman Brothers, which, who got taken down in 2008, which was probably <laughs> revenge. <clears throat> um, oh, do you really think so? Oh, I suspect so. Yeah. Gee, okay. they, no one ever mentioned that at the time. All right. Um, oh, genuinely, yeah, very likely. Um, and they bailed bailed long-term capital management out with, you know, funds everywhere, and they they fixed the problem. Now, any normal person or person possessed of, you know, basic level of sanity would go, ooh, that didn't go well. Don't do that again. Exactly. So what did Alan Grantsfain do? He he doubled down, tripled down, quadrupled down. He, he came up with this idea, and not just him, but the whole the financial deregulators, financial, you know, overseers, that, oh, the problem was, was that there were too few hedge funds. If we have a th- if a thousand, we have thousands or tens of thousands of hedge funds all playing the derivatives market, then they'll kind of equalise each other out and everything will be great. Uh, which has got to be one of the most catastrophically stupid decisions ever made in finance. Right? And that's when I started covering it for BRW, the magazine. And I wrote story after story after, I tracked the growth of derivatives and I wrote story after story after story saying the system will break. Um, and guess what? In 2007, 2008, the system broke yeah. um, because of derivatives. Now, a lot of people will tell you it's because of the US housing market. That's nonsense. It's because well, that's, what, the, that's what I thought. No, it's the derivatives. They packaged up mortgages and then traded the derivatives off it, and there was credit default swaps. And the, the big short had that film, The Big Short, has it. Yeah, um, covers it very well. And the thing that the most important scene in that film is the Ryan Gosling character, who's based on a Deutsche Bank real person, explains how he just invented the derivative, just made it up. And then he sold it to the guys in the room, and then they went out and sold it to the to the institutions. It was just made up. And that's what happens when you get financial deregulation. If you allow these people to just invent stuff, they will, because they make money out of it. They're making money out of money, out of money, out of money, out of money. And that's the price of the utter stupidity of not understanding what financial deregulation was. And that's the mess we are now in. Now, the... Um, in 2008, Alan Greenspan said, ooh, looks like I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, a, little, a little bit late, Alan. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, my fundamental assumptions seem to have been incorrect. Yes, they were. Um, and the system very nearly collapsed completely. Um, we now have – I mean, the good news is like the derivatives, volume of derivatives, and I used to track this – by the way, I was—I wasn't when it happened. I wasn't allowed to write on it. Oh, really? No. They said to me, "Oh, you've been writing about that for ages. So you can stop now." <laughs> so that so didn't want to go there. No, because the the Financial Review, which sort of ran BRW, the people, the editors thought it was going to be too negative for the banks. Right. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you'd be lucky if you have any banks. <laughs> As it was. I mean, it went very close to collapse, very, yep. very close to collapse. And it, the potential is still there, of course. Um, but the rate of growth has slowed. There's still 700 
trillion of them, which is like more than all the wealth in the world. Um, it's six trillion a day across its borders, and only two percent of the transactions, or less than two percent of the transactions in the foreign exchange markets are actually trade goods and services being transacted. The other ninety-eight percent is derivatives. The Bank for International Settlements every three years they do a survey, and it um, called the Triennial Survey. If anyone wants to look it up, um, and it's six trillion a day, and a lot it has ninety percent of them have the US dollar on one side. So, yeah, it's actually saved the control of the US dollar to a significant degree. But um, something's going to go wrong again probably off the debt markets, which are out of control. And you just wish people would ask the question, well, what do we mean by money? What yeah, because we- 2%, um, that, those figures that you just mentioned, 2% of cross-border transactions involving trade in goods and services. Less than two, yeah. Or, or less than two. Yeah. They're the only things that are real. Exactly. The rest is just making money out of money. Now, there is one development which happened since the Ukraine war, um, which is sort of, I think, still beginning, but it's actually quite positive. Um, If you look at the SWIFT system, the foreign exchange markets, it's called SWIFT. It's incredibly dangerous, risky, and it has, in, in engineering terms, it has no redundancy. If something goes wrong, the whole thing sort of collapses, right? It's it's a very bad system for being sustainable. Do you I mean, mean if something technically happens or there's some well, kind if, of... If, if there's a meltdown, if you yeah. look at it as an engineering system, if, okay, there's a, yeah. if, if there's a meltdown in an engineering system, you need redundant capacity to sort of take the shock, right? This system has none. The irony in 2008, by the way, and this was really... A, I mean, this is only my guess, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. In 2008, the redundancy came from China. Oh, okay. Um, The meltdown, like you can lose, in this derivatives thing, you can lose hundreds of billions of dollars in about 20 seconds, right? It's incredibly fast, the speed at which the the problems occur, because it's all computerized and algorithms and all this. Speed of light. Yeah. Yeah. the metaphor I use is um, if you think of the Western financial systems as like, you know, high-tech supercomputers, they've got a virus, which was the meltdown of the derivatives, right? Um, it was also interconnected into the Chinese financial system, was like a 1980 Atari, right? Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> the, the 1980 Atari didn't recognize it. Yeah, it didn't, yeah. so it was kind of insulated so, well, actually, offline from it, in a it way. Sort of, it sort of slowed it down. And because it slowed it down, okay, yeah. the governments had time to do something about it. Yeah. Gotcha, yeah. Be- because, I'm not kidding, you could go to sleep one night and if something goes really wrong in the derivatives market, you can wake up the next morning and, you know, Armageddon, financial Armageddon. Well, would we see it building to something or is it literally no, that? It's no? completely unpredictable, you know. Okay. I mean, nobody ever predicts it. Nobody ever predicts it. Um, <clears throat> the um, you just got to cross your fingers and hope. But um, 
Russia was taken out of SWIFT. I mean, they thought that if they took, you know, SWIFT is the international system. Yeah, yeah. And they thought Russia would be completely crippled by that. And yeah, they seemed to assume that. It was pretty cocky at the time. Just a bit. Well, it was pretty wrong. But the Russians were very worried, actually. They thought they'd be in trouble too. Um, they were very worried and pleasantly surprised. <laughs> I, I wasn't. Russia. I, I actually tried to buy some rubles, because, but <laughs> yeah. I couldn't. Get, I couldn't get any, um, like the physical ones. Um, uh, is that because uh, getting back to what's real, what's not? Do, do they, you know, sort of dealing in real money? Yes, precisely. Yeah. Okay. Like, like to give you an idea of the turnover, New Zealand had at at that time, New Zealand had more foreign exchange transactions than Russia did. Right, but Russia's right. foreign exchange transactions are all around. Um, well, it's it's exports of oil, gas, and diamonds are the main ones, and uh, and other stuff, um, uranium, and so they were real things. Right? Yeah, and yeah. Um, yeah, physical things, and its imports were actually not much. Well, they they're pretty well self sufficient, aren't they? That's a thing about that country. It, it, even more so now. Anything yeah. they might need, they can get from China. Um, yeah. So. It completely failed. And the thing that was to cripple Russia, in fact, Russia's economy at the moment is growing at about 5%. <laughs> like yeah, Europe's a rocket in, under it. Europe's in recession and I mean, complete failure. I mean, sanctions, trade sanctions never work because you just give it to a third party. Right? But they thought that the financial sanctions would really cripple Russia. I mean, if you did it to China, it would cripple China, right? Okay, yeah. But it, because of the interconnection of the... Europe, American and Chinese markets. Right? Okay. Yeah. Russia was fairly separate. And anyway, they then, I'll, I'll never forget this. Um, the Russians turned around and said, well, if you want our stuff, you're going to have to pay in rubles. What? <laughs> and Suddenly the demand for ru rubles goes up. Goes right? up goes, and Emmanuel Macron, he actually said this. He said, oh, they're blackmailing us. <laughs> well, who started it? <laughs> well, you can't pay them in uh, US dollars or euros, so pay us in our currency. Because that, okay. according to Macron, that was blackmail. <laughs> no, but that shows yeah. you the extent to which they were just completely taken by surprise. They seem to have been done. It's hard to explain because I'm just thinking as you're talking there. The other thing, and maybe it's not you know as financial, but they keep doing it to themselves. It turns out that the head of the uh, Ukraine military actually, it seems, planned the Nord Stream pipeline bombing which well, completely negatively in so many ways instantaneously affected the german industrial capability uh, yeah. but also it was someone they're paying money to yeah. to help doing it to them i mean what's wrong with these people i i suspect that's a plant i think it's i think it was the americans and possibly the british but okay well they're throwing it, but it's Ukrainians the same, it's, under the bus now it's so, it's, okay. it's the same it's the same uh Dynamic. But they seem to get everything wrong. They're just so dumb. Well, I've been thinking about this. And, like, so I'm not sure this is true. I'd have to check it. But one, one person I was watching said that since 1991, Russia has started four wars. One would be Chechnya, one would be Georgia, uh, Ukraine, and another one. And this guy said America started over 200, right? <laughs> Yeah, and I was thinking about it. I'm not. Let's say it's right. I'm, I, I haven't checked it. Um, 
And in that time, America's never won a war. They've lost a lot, right? No, they don't fight very well. <clears throat> and I was thinking, but that, that, it's a simple explanation for that. They don't want to win the war. They just no, want they want to just to keep on going or transfer to another one. When that they one. just want to start wars. Yeah. Because it's, it makes them a fortune. Yeah. And they're never personally at risk. So they're not existential wars, unlike, say, Russia. And they never go to a conflict to the scale where they could be. That's right. It's just keep the racket going. I think uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor describes it as clubbing baby seals. <laughs> yeah, he's he's very good on the racket and how they, yeah, the, the military, um, the the weapons manufacturers control the politicians in the the revolving yeah. door between the military and it, it's just huge financial. It is financial, huge financial racket. Now we've got another one. God knows what's going to get where that's going to yeah. go. Getting back to derivatives, yeah, and the risk and 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 the well. The system is as risky as it was in 2008. Because Russia got kicked out of uh, SWIFT, they have sort of led the world, and particularly the developing world, or the global south, as they call it. Yeah. Um, they signal, first of all, to the global south that America no longer is the only bully on the block because America tried to crush Russia and Russia crushed and Russia just sailed through. Yeah, and people have taken note of that. That's so. Uh, that's given them confidence, but and they started to. They talk about creating an alternative currency. I don't think that they will at all, because it makes no sense. But they cannot. Create, they are starting to create an alternative payment system. Yeah, yeah. That 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 that's in train, and you know Saudi Arabia is in it, and uh, I mean it's not just the BRICS countries. It's Oh, it's about 40 and what will that mean for the backers of the SWIFT system? And that's more than competition, I take it. That's um... well. Whereas the SWIFT system is all about gambling and making money out of money, hmm. the the new one will be about trade. It'll be about transactions of goods and services, right? That is a good thing yeah. because a if SWIFT collapses, you've got an alternative. You'll be able to use the other one, and so that creates a kind of redundancy, a kind of risk buffer. I mean, I really hope it takes off because having two systems means that if one system goes down, which is very likely, you've got another one that won't go down, and um, yeah. at least you've got something still left from the wreckage. I think it's the most positive. I mean, it's hugely ironic how it came about, but I think it's the most positive development. I've seen in the time I've been watching it, which is actually thirty years now. Okay, well that's a, a good stretch. So, so that's um, a good, that's a that's a glimmer of hope. Yeah, because so it's problematic though, isn't it, for anyone who uses an alternative system? Um, you know, because you know what the Americans are like. Uh, you're either with us or you're against us. Well, Russia's gone bad luck, America. Yeah, but I'm um, just wondering if, like, in New Zealand. We'd oh, get New Zealand. heavy like crazy for that, wouldn't we? Well, you don't need to do it while Swift is working. I'm talking if Swift goes down. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. But even just to have the choice. But yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Which I think is likely. Okay. Well, there you go. So with this huge amount of debt and the cycle <laughs> that has been going all this time, and it wasn't that long ago that it came to the edge, can, can you put any time frame on it, David? I mean, is this something that we could wake up to in the near term 
you know, to doom and gloom in the news all of a sudden? Um, I think the rising interest rates have really concentrated people's minds about it all. Uh, Timeframes are always problematic and, you know, I'm no better than anyone else in predicting these things, you know. Yeah. Um, um, Well, it feels like something's up. It feels like something could give. Well, particularly if rates continue to rise. And rates are not just a function of inflation. Like, I think it... Like long-term, ten-year bonds in um, in America are up to about eight percent, right? Which is really high. Um, and I think the rates that are set in Australasia are, are partly done in relation to U.S. rates. I, I think they look at U.S. rates. I mean, they obviously look at local inflation and employment numbers and so on. But I think they also, <clears throat> partly because, in their mind, protecting the currency means comes from having an interest rate that's not too different from the US dollar. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Um so you know, I mean that article from uh, Wolf Martin Wolf in the Financial Times is perfectly fine about, you know, rates peaking, but it's classic economist positioning where you see a possible a possibility and you try to be the first guy that says it. And cling um, to it, and, cl- yeah. and 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 if it works out, you go look, see, I knew. And if it doesn't work out, you just conveniently forget about it and move on to the next one. <laughs> okay, cling to the next thing. Yeah, so I, I don't. It's not predictable. You just don't know. One of the best co- comments I ever heard. I used to cover the Australian dollar every morning for the newspaper I work for. You know, and um, you get a prediction of what was going to happen that day. And then the officer would happen and you ring up and you get another prediction of what was going to happen that day and the officer would happen. You know, after a while I realised these people didn't have a goddamn clue. And I mentioned it to someone and he said, um, well, actually, there are two two kinds of people with the Australian dollar. There are people who don't know what the Australian dollar will do and there are people who know they don't know what the Australian dollar will do. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that's, right. a, that, that's a good... Um, a good sort of starting point with predicting financial markets. You, you're better off knowing that you don't know. Yeah. Because you don't, and nobody does, you know. Yeah. Um, I noticed also uh, this week was in our news that um, Australians had suffered the biggest contraction of wealth, I think per capita wealth, uh, personal wealth, down 5.1%. Oh, I missed and, that. And, and – I mean, is that going to slide anymore? And what does that do to the psyche of the nation? Oh, it'd, it'd be mainly. I mean, the, it'd be all um, house prices, which does nothing. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, so it's it, more extra mortgage payments, basically. Well, it'd be the valuation of the houses. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. The the roughly when I last looked was a while ago. These are the relativities. The stock market's worth two and a half trillion. Superannuation, which is a stroke of utter genius under the Hawke government, Hawke Keating government, is worth three and a half trillion, which is why a quarter of our super goes offshore because there simply aren't enough places to invest it here, and it's going to get more problematic. And housing is worth about six trillion. Okay, <laughs> so so that net wealth, you know, if, if house prices ease that net worth will fall. But it, yeah. for, for people who, 
you know, live in their house, that doesn't really, unless you sell your house, it makes no difference. Yeah, though there's a psychological dimension to that, if you feel like you're worth less. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, I think a lot of people, in Australia, a third of the population owns their house and has no debt. A third has horrendous debt. And a third rents. Okay. Yeah. And so, and the rents are rising as well. So that, that two thirds will feel pressure, and you'll see, you know, their budgets will come under pressure. The one third won't. You know. Can you see just we're coming up on time? Can you see, you know, um, a possibility that because derivatives are so not real, that um, that 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 system will be sort of massaged or pushed out of the financial system over time as something that kind of doesn't work, uh, too risky, or are we going to have to have a big epic spill to... Um, I, think the la- I think the latter. I think the chances of uh, the various players, the regulators, the traders, the investment banks and all that, sort of standing back and looking at themselves and saying, well, are we doing the right thing here? Is pretty much a zero. Because you could engineer a, a path out, I take it, over time if you really oh, wanted to. No, it's very easy. You just create a cross-border tax. It's called a Tobin tax. So every oh, okay. time it, it's, yeah. done on, it's done on um, such fine margins with such huge leverage that if you taxed it, um, and this was, this was discussed, you know, 20 years ago um, and ridiculed by the you know, the the financiers. Um, if you taxed it, and you had, you'd have to have an agreement between the players, the countries, it would evaporate overnight. Okay. I mean, yep. it, it, it's not completely. Um, you do need derivatives, especially for commodities. Right. You know, mining companies and agriculture companies—they need them because prices are so volatile. You need to protect yourself against adverse. But you can't make every single thing you can think of a derivative. Well, I mean, some of the derivatives just nuts. Like my favourite was, it's the derivative on volatility. <laughs> what? Oh, there's climate derivatives. You know. Oh dear. Yeah. There's, there's derivatives on everything. You know. Yeah. It's yeah. it's it's a barking insane lunatic asylum. And but the only thing to wake it up is some kind of. Collapse, which we nearly had in two thousand and eight. I mean, people don't know how close it got, and it's probably better that they don't. Right. But, but in September two thousand and eight, I think it was five hundred billion, some kind of algorithmic trigger. I think went out of the U.S. money markets in about four hours. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And. Um, and that that included bank the banks, right? And midday, the head of, Hank Paulson, the head the head of the Treasury, and interestingly, it was the Treasury and not the Res- Federal Reserve, um, had a decision to make, right? He could continue with the policy of deregulation and governments going, oh no, no, don't worry, the market will work itself out, it, it'll be fine. Yeah. Or he could regulate, and so for the really, and actually dictate. Right. Yeah. And um, he decided to dictate, to regulate. 
So by midday, he shut down every money market account in America. He said the government's writing every bank deposit, underwriting every bank deposit up to $250,000. And we will not reopen the markets until the situation stables and you bastards stop it, right? <clears throat> and that was regulation. That was, if you like, fiat, right? Government fiat. And it finished up here. We had a turn, I think we still do, a $250,000 insurance underwriting of every... Yeah, we, we had it over the time period, 100 k I think, uh, though that's not there anymore, but at the time it was. Yeah, I thought it was actually withdrawn here, but I think it still exists. But anyway, okay. yeah. um, that's government fiat. That's regulation. And the Treasury's own estimate is that by the end of the day, $6 trillion would have gone out of the US banking system. Gosh, okay, that was the right move then, wasn't it? Well, to put that in context, that means you've got no banking system anywhere in the world left. Oh, and, it, and, it, and it got, because six banks lend out 20 times what they have, so that's 120, I mean, you know, it's just, forget yep. it. Banks are, banks gone, no bank. You go to the ATM, no cash, no nothing. nothing. Um, and that was literally within about, six hours and that's what derivatives can do so you didn't hear about that did you no not at the time um no. we've heard about it now or, or you or since anyway yeah okay well a lot to think about there um thank you so much david james for coming on and explaining all of that i think we we kind of got our heads around way more anyway what derivatives are and um what it all means than we did before we chatted so Thanks for coming on again. Any, any Anything that we've missed? Any last words? No, I think that that's mad enough. <laughs> About enough for one session. Yes. All right. Okay, okay David James, uh, Australian business and financial journalist. Thanks for coming back on. I'm sure we'll talk again. And, um, and that was very enlightening. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.